1: Welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Scotland has often developed a breakaway spirit, but Brexit has supercharged Scottish nationalism. This week's elections will determine the likelihood of another independence referendum. We look at the risks and the costs of a disunited kingdom. And over time, it's become a bit warm for many of the world's coffee plantations. The most widespread types only grow in a narrow temperature range. Now, researchers have rediscovered a forgotten, heat-friendly cultivar for the climate change era. But first, A new law comes into force in Utah today that will allow people to carry guns in public without the need for a permit. Across America, many states are making it easier for people to carry their guns without being subject to a background check or going through training. That trend is at odds with President Joe Biden's administration, which is looking to tighten regulations around weapons in the wake of recent shootings. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic. Let me say it again. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic, and it's an international embarrassment. But with Congress unlikely to pass federal regulation because of Republican opposition, the states are where the legislation is being reshaped. It's left some with looser gun laws than existed in the 19th century.
2: This is a pretty fundamental change. Twenty years ago, only Vermont allowed people to carry handguns without a permit. By the end of this year, at least 20 states will.
1: Alexandra Sewich Bass is the economist's senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society.
2: So so far this year, we've seen five states pass permitless carry laws. Utah's goes into effect today. And in Utah, guns must be concealed, so in holsters, say, tucked underneath the jacket. But other states, like Tennessee, are going to allow people to carry their handguns in plain sight. Five more states, including Louisiana and South Carolina, are considering permitless carry bills. And so is Texas, where the state's Republican Party has listed the legislation as a priority.
1: And how big a change does this make from existing laws?
2: This is a pretty radical shift. The new laws unwind the safeguards that exist under current licensing schemes. For example, in Texas, to carry a concealed handgun, you have to apply for a license. That includes going through a background check, fingerprinting, training, a written exam, and shooting test. And that's very helpful because it can raise red flags if someone shouldn't be carrying a gun, and people can get rejected if they have a criminal history or psychological problems, under the proposed legislation, all of this would go. What's particularly concerning about this is it's coming at a time when mass shootings are occurring frequently, violent crime is rising. So it raises the question of whether this is really the right time to be discussing and pushing for permitless carry.
1: Well, it would seem on the face of it not to be. Why are states showing so much willing to to loosen these already relatively loose laws?
2: So much of this has to do with the power of the pro-gun lobby, uh, mainly the National Rifle Association, which has armed politicians in Republican states with arguments that more citizens with guns can help boost public safety. The argument of the NRA is that more good guys with guns will intercept bad guys with guns. You're hearing this in many different states, including from the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, Alan West who believes Second Amendment rights are under attack from Washington now that we've had a change of administration.
0: You know something that happened just recently? Well, Joe Biden said that our constitutional rights are not absolute. Well, President Biden, should I just say, Joe, our constitutional rights are absolute. Our constitutional rights are inalienable. They don't come from you. So you can't just by the stroke of a pen on an executive order take them away.
1: Well, what about the NRA's argument? Do more guns, more freedom with guns lead to greater public safety? Is there any evidence to back that up?
2: There is not. There are several reasons why armed citizens rarely interrupt shooting rampages, including the fear that police might believe them to be the shooter. We don't have research yet on the impact of permitless carry laws, but researchers at Stanford looked at the impact of right-to-carry laws, which makes it the default that people get concealed carry licenses. And they found that 10 years after adoption, these laws were linked to a 13 to 15 percent increase in violent crimes rates. It's really notable that this is one rare instance where Republicans have split from law enforcement who oppose the passage of these laws. And we've seen in cities like Dallas, where Eddie Garcia is among a group of police chiefs who have campaigned against permitless carry, they say that... Permitless carry could endanger them and make it more likely that criminals and felons would be walking around armed.
3: Gun owners have a duty to ensure that their firearms are handled safely and a duty to know applicable laws. The licensing process is the best way to ensure this message is conveyed.
1: But how much of this momentum has to do with what's going on in the states versus the the pressure that you say is building in Washington?
2: Well, there's a lot of interest in Washington in potentially enacting gun control, but that's not likely to happen given the current breakdown of Congress. And so what we're seeing is a lot of action from the states. They are the ones that are either pushing forward with loosening gun laws or with tightening gun laws. And we see examples of both. We see action in Colorado, New Jersey and Virginia. They've taken action to tighten policies in response to mass shootings and safety concerns. But there are more states going in the direction of deregulation than regulation of guns.
1: So it it sounds as if it's a a, a flashpoint, a shibboleth for the Republican Party rather than for the populace at large.
2: Well, I think a very interesting case study to see how all this will play out will be Texas, the country's largest red state. Even in Texas, which has a pretty pro-gun culture Largely, adults don't think people should be allowed to carry handguns in public without licenses or permits. Only 34 percent of people, according to a recent survey, support it. 59 percent are opposed. And that shows that the Republicans are really pushing for a law that is not a consensus or necessarily popular. They're pushing for a law that's popular with their base to help them win conservative voters in the primaries. And so I think this is a reflection of politics and how it's playing out on the state level, where politicians are pushing to either extreme. But I think Texas is going to be a very interesting test for two reasons. One is how far Republicans push permitless carry. And another is whether moderate voters buck in response to that and punish politicians who are pushing some of these extreme ideas
1: But clearly a lot of people are against these laws as written, uh, notably police chiefs among them. I mean, what do you think it would take to get rid of the political momentum that's behind this liberalizing of laws?
2: I think what's happening is that the elected politicians are not reflecting the views of their constituents. And so in order for that to change, I think more moderates need to be running and be elected to office. The primary system, unfortunately, in different states rewards the people who stake out the most polarizing, extreme positions. But to the extent that we see more moderates elected, I think that will really change the debate on a lot of different issues, guns included.
1: Alexander, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Jason.
1: As the European Parliament ratified the Brexit divorce deal last January, a bagpiper played in the square outside. While Britain as a whole voted to leave the European Union, 62% of Scots opposed the decision.
4: The tragedy for Scotland is that on Friday, Scotland will be dragged out of the EU against the democratic wishes of our people.
1: Eileen MacLeod, a member of European Parliament from the Scottish National Party, told her colleagues that her country would be back before long.
4: And in the meantime, I hope very much that you will leave a light on for Scotland.
1: Then, after the vote was cast, the chamber rose to its feet and sang one of Scotland's best-known songs. Brexit has revitalized Scottish nationalism. Tomorrow, there will be elections for the Scottish Parliament. Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, has said if she's returned to office, she'll have a mandate for a second referendum on independence, probably by the end of 2023. In the previous referendum, in 2014, Scots narrowly rejected independence. But a lot has changed since then, making the death of a United Kingdom that stood since 1707 a real possibility.
4: Brexit has given the independence cause two things it previously lacked.
1: Matthew Holhouse is our British political correspondent.
4: It's provided a destination to reach. It's allowed the nationalists to say, Scotland is a European nation and we've been taken out of Europe and we need to get back to Europe and that's the whole point of independence. And it's also provided evidence for the nationalist belief that the things Scotland wants simply aren't heard in Westminster.
1: So can Nicola Sturgeon simply decide to hold another referendum after the Scottish elections? How would that work?
4: It's not straightforward. Under British law, which governs devolution, the union is the exclusive concern of Westminster Parliament, and the referendum in 2014 was held with the permission of David Cameron, was prime minister. Now, Ms. Sturgeon would like Boris Johnson to do the same, but if he does not, Ms. Sturgeon will push ahead with the law in the Scottish Parliament for a referendum within two years or so. And she will dare Mr. Johnson to approve it. And she will say that if he sends it to the Supreme Court, they will fight it really hard. Now, I think it's pretty clear that Mr. Johnson is going to resist. Independence would trigger a rapid downgrade in Britain's role in the world. It would inflict all sorts of emotional trauma on the United Kingdom and political turmoil, which he really, really doesn't want on his plate.
1: And where does the sentiment stand now? Are Scots in favor of independence?
4: Polls at the moment show a small lead for independence. And I would argue that Scotland's future is going to be determined on a question of whether independence is seen as an escape from Brexit, or whether Scots come to see it as risking repeating the trauma of Brexit. And we know that many of the legal and the logistical challenges of independence and of joining the EU could end up looking strikingly similar to the challenges that came from trying to unwind Britain from the EU.
1: And if it comes to that, what are the main hurdles?
4: The principal difficulty is what the economic consequences look like, which have the potential to be much greater than those of Brexit. There is the currency question. The British government is pretty clear that Scotland wouldn't be able to keep on using sterling. So it's a question then of whether they attempt to create a new currency or in time join the euro. Creating a whole new currency would present things like big exchange rate risks, which would appear in cross-border contracts, and the consequences perhaps for people whose wages are being paid in a new currency, but whose mortgages were agreed in sterling. That is lots to suggest that Scotland's public finances would be squeezed. Scotland raises less tax and spends more per person than the rest of the UK. And leaving the UK will create new trade barriers.
1: And having watched the frankly tortured negotiations for Britain to leave the EU, what do the divorce negotiations look like, you think, in the case of Scotland?
4: It would be a long and gradual process. The Institute for Government reckons that you're talking probably around a decade from referendum all the way through to rejoining the EU. You're going to have to deal with some really big constitutional questions like does Scotland keep the monarchy? Some really big defence issues like Britain's nuclear arsenal in Scottish waters. You're going to have a big fight over money, so you'll need to apportion Britain's £2 trillion national debt. You're going to have to deal with assets, Scotland's oil and gas reserves. Now, in Brexit, the EU had big leverage because it was the bigger party. This time, it's going to be London that has the leverage. And that's because Scotland is really deeply integrated in the United Kingdom. We have common tax systems, common pension systems. The way in which electricity is distributed is all knitted together. And so you're going to be spending a decade, perhaps more, teasing these systems apart. And that means you need to have a very sort of collaborative negotiating process. If you had a no-deal situation, a brutal rupture, then that could cause all sorts of chaos in Scotland. At the same time, politics could get quite Brexit-like as well. On the UK side, there might be all sorts of fears about Wales on Northern Ireland going, which could drive a hard bargain. And how does the dynamic
1: of leverage, as you put it, work when it comes to EU membership?
4: In one big respect, EU accession is easier than leaving the UK, and that's because it's a really well-trodden process. It's very, very well defined in European law. Other countries have done it. Now, the main criteria for entry are that a state upholds democracy and the rule of law, operates a robust market economy, and that it can apply the EU rulebook. And Scotland would not have too great a difficulty demonstrating that because it was part of the EU for such a long time as part of the UK. The trickiest task will actually be creating all the new agencies that enforce EU law within Scotland. So it's going to have to put a lot of work into building up people who deal with data protection or customs or or competition.
1: So the big picture here is that Scottish independence could be costly. It will be messy. It'll be complex. Do you think as that possibility crystallizes, it'll change public opinion? There, There were similar warnings like this before people eventually did vote for Brexit.
4: That's exactly right. In many ways, this is an opposite of Brexit because Scotland wants to rejoin the EU and repudiate Brexit, but it also risks being its mirror because we can see a lot of similar dangers. If you look at the slogans both sides use, they're rather similar. Nationalists talk about putting Scotland's future in Scotland's hands sounds a little bit like the Brexit campaign of taking back control. The big lesson from Brexit, I think, is that It's a mistake to think that just because something is going to be full of obstacles and long and difficult, it means that people won't vote for it.
1: Given all of that, if it is ultimately the will of the Scottish people to break away, they should be allowed to do so, no?
4: Nationalists say that if they get a majority in the next parliament in Scotland, that would be a mandate for a referendum and one could go ahead. But one of the questions posed to us by Brexit is what is the best basis for a big constitutional change? One of the reasons why Brexit was so difficult was because the result was so close, 52%, 48%. And so it raises the question, would it make for a more stable, successful negotiation and more successful independence project If no referendum is held until it's really clear that independence is Scotland's settled will, and then you know you have a really stable, secure, democratic basis for that project. Matthew,
1: thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you, Jason.
1: Oh, coffee, dark, invigorating coffee, savior of the sleep-deprived, fuel for the intelligent staff and worker bees everywhere. For decades, the coffee market has been dominated by two varieties, a snazzier one called Arabica and Robusta, so named because it's robust to slightly warmer temperatures. But the rising temperatures brought about by climate change are putting pressure on both. Some of the best coffee bushes in the world have to be shaded, actively cooled, even moved altogether.
3: The situation is dicey because as climate is warming, the species of coffee that we're raising can't cope. So farmers are stuck between a rock and a hard place here.
1: Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist.
3: Fortunately, we're not totally stuffed because the reality is there are other varieties of coffee out there, and a team of researchers has just identified one of them that looks like it could be the salvation of caffeine addicts everywhere.
1: So what is this cultivar that's going to save us all?
3: So it, the cultivar that we're looking at is known as coffea stenophila, and it's not entirely new to science. In fact, in 1834, a Scottish botanist named George Don. He stumbled upon it and noted that coffea stenophylla had a flavor that was better than that of Arabica's. And that's surprising because most of the other coffees that have been noted over the years have been described as tasting pretty terrible compared to Arabica. So when Dr. Aaron Davis at the Royal Botanic Gardens of Kew here in Britain started looking at the origins of this stenophylla coffee, he noticed that it lives in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and in the lowland hills in those regions, and those areas are hot, really hot. And so that led him to speculate, well, if it tastes good and it's living in these really hot areas, I should probably look into it more closely.
1: But if it's seemingly a bit more hardy and uh, allegedly even tastier, then why isn't it one of the, one of the global players now?
3: That's a good question. In the 1920s, as Robusta was becoming a dominant crop, Stenophila was still being farmed in areas like Guinea, Sierra Leone, and even the Ivory Coast. But as Robusta picked up speed, farmers start to lean on Robusta more so than Stenophila, and it became lost to science. This is largely because Stenophila just doesn't yield quite as much as Robusta, and at the time, at least, it seemed harder to grow. And in face of the fact that climate wasn't all that hot back then, there wasn't that much concern about whether or not it was hardy and capable of coping with temperatures as high as 26 degrees C, which is a lot warmer than what Robusta can put up with. So that led Stenophila to largely be forgotten.
1: And what about the alleged superior taste as far as modern palates are concerned?
3: I think it's important to point out that just because George Don said it tasted good, well, he's a Scottish botanist from over 150 years ago. So the question of whether or not it really tasted good and whether it really tasted better than Arabica was a matter for experts to decide. And that's exactly what Dr. Davis did. He collaborated with 18 professional coffee tasters and asked them to do blind comparisons with samples of Stenophila, Arabica, and Robusta. And It was remarkable. Stenophila really performed very well. The tasters commented that Stenophila tasted just as good as Arabica. It also lacked a lot of the kind of acidic and bitter flavors that are viewed as drawbacks associated with Robusta. Remember, Robusta is grown largely because it's robust and can take up a lot of punishment. It doesn't taste as good because it's got this bitter acidity. But Stenophila really doesn't have that. So this was a huge win for this newly identified species of coffee.
1: Well, re-identified, I I suppose the question now is whether it will go into production.
3: It is entirely possible that Stenophila could be grown directly. It had yield problems during the 1920s, and that needs to be further explored. So my inclination, and certainly I think Dr. Davis's inclination, is that we're going to see Stenophila analyzed at a pretty high level And that we may either take genes from Arabica and Robusta and migrate them into Stenophila, or we may do the other way around. And we may end up with a varietal that can cope with the warmer planet and still give people their cup of joe that they so very much desire.
1: Matt, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Jason.